What I have found so exhausting about the internet age is I used to kind of just have one voice in my head and now I see myself from so many different angles, whether that's an advertiser angle or as a parent or a journalist. It's exhausting. No wonder we need more self-care. Hey, I'm Kelly Corrigan and wondering is pretty much what I do best. At the moment, we are deep into a set of questions around how different generations think through some of the bigger issues of life, like work and parenting, money and well-being. This week, we're talking to Manoush Zomarodi. You might know that name. She hosts the TED Radio Hour. She also wrote a great book called Bored and Brilliant, How Spacing Out Can Unlock Your Most Creative Self. So join me for a conversation with Manoush about how different generations think about and approach well-being. Hey, everybody. If you love listening to true stories from people all around the world, then we have the perfect recommendation for you, the Moth Podcast. Each episode features people from Moth events around the globe, sharing diverse and honest stories of love, resilience, change, heartbreak, chance encounters, unbelievable calamities, and everything in between. Episodes drop weekly. Find the Moth Podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too. With the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, this is Kelly Corrigan, and I'm back with Kelly Corrigan Wonders. Today is another installment of our Mind the Gap series, a look at how different generations approach money, work, parenting, and well-being. In this episode, we're talking about self-care with writer and podcaster Manoush Zomorodi, who I met through my production partner, Medium. I wanted to talk to you, Manoush, about some of the stuff Mm. you've written for Medium that got me thinking about the generation gaps between our generation, (laughs) our kids' generation, Uh and the people who raised us. So can you give me a sense of your mom and dad? My mom is from Switzerland, Swiss German. My dad is from Iran. I was born in New York City and grew up in New Jersey. So, as I like to say, I'm a Swiss-Persian New Yorker. um, (laughs) And I married someone who is a sixth-generation New Yorker. So it's interesting to me as a kid of immigrants, I was the person who would come home and be like, okay, so here's how you apply to college. This is what you do. And my parents were like, okay, cool. Tell us what we need to do. I think it fostered a lot of independence in me. So tell me how your mom and dad thought about well-being. Weren't they both psychiatrists? 
Yes, they're both retired now. They really were people that were focused on well-being, not in the um, touchy-feely sense at all. They were medical doctors, and their focus was really on geriatric psychiatry. So they were dealing with extremely sick people with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So that did not extend to our household. It's not like we were having deep conversations about how we felt about things at the dinner table. If anything, we were the opposite because I think culturally that just wasn't how it was done. And I think generationally also, you know, the parents are in charge and the kids do what they're told. And I definitely did not feel like my parents were my best friends. Like I hear a lot of kids describe their parents these days. If you're working with people with Parkinson's or dementia, you're thinking about psychiatry as medicine and not vitamins. Like Mm -hmm. it's an intervention to alleviate suffering rather than something everyone should do and would benefit from. I wonder if that would even create a lower tolerance for the kind of ordinary waves of happiness and unhappiness that are involved in the life of people like you and me and our children. That's actually a really good point. I'm not sure I ever thought to attribute my parents' impatience with any, like, excess whining or anxiety or any of those sorts of things. We're not a family that talked about our feelings and stuff at all. And maybe it is because of that. Um, You know, are you doing okay at school? Yes. Are you healthy? Yes. Do you have food to eat? Yes. So I don't know if you've read much Gia Tolentino. Of course. Yes. I want to be Gia Tolentino when I grow up, actually. So she was on the pod a couple episodes ago, and she really draws out this idea of the commercialization of self-optimization And that Mm. what we think of as self-care might really be programmed into us by advertising and Instagram. Mm. That it's Mm -hmm. like, you deserve these lotions and potions. You deserve like an atomizer of sweet smells or a sleep Mm. app or a yoga app. But really, it might just be companies that are a part of this enormous multi-trillion dollar health and wellness industry are very cleverly manipulating us into believing that we aren't buying products and paying for services, but rather we're building resilience and accepting Mm. our vulnerability and tending to our soul. Mm. Well, first of all, Gia Tolentino is extremely smart, and I have to completely agree. And I feel you know, speaking not as a journalist or as a writer, but as a consumer, that I am constantly trying to parse that line. I just got a pedicure for the first time since 2019. Part of it, I was like, I deserve this. It's been so long since I've taken care of myself. And then part of me was like, ew, what language are you even using to describe why you're like having a woman look at your feet for an hour? And then another part of me was like, you have gross feet. Don't do this to the world. Make them look nice. And then another part of me, you know what I mean? Like you can all these different voices in your minds from different perspectives competing to decide what you do with an hour of your day and $40. And I think that that is what I have found so exhausting about the internet age is I used to kind of just have one voice in my head. And now I see myself from so many different angles, whether that's an advertiser angle or as a parent or a journalist or as a consumer of social media. It's exhausting. No wonder we need more self-care because we're so tired. We have so many decisions 
decisions we have to make every day and we overthink them so much. So, yes, we are being commoditized in every single way. And I just, I think it's harder and harder to know when. Yeah. Well, and then you think about, you know, so we have lives as our parents' children. We have lives as two women. And then we have lives as parents. And you're watching your kids and you're thinking, this is insane. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're, you know, and sometimes when you watch something like The Social Dilemma and you're, you're trying your best to come up with a new winning argument of why you should read a paper book or mm-hmm. put, put down your phone and, and, and take a walk out in nature and just bring nothing with you. And one of the arguments that I like the best that I thought might work on my independent woke daughters who are 18 and yes. 19 is you're being manipulated. Like, you know that, right? They're, yeah. they're telling you, you know, they're telling no? you that you need to, that, that you should be ambitious and you should be in your body, whatever your body is. But they're also telling you to do soul cycle. And it's not a product. It's like a avenue to soul development. Mm. And I want you to be a conscious consumer. And I wonder if like there's some kind of rise of commercialism that maps Mm. to our parents, us, and our children that makes the messaging almost impossible to resist for our kids. The other thing about social media is that it's inherently focused on self in a way that my mother, for instance, and her generation were just not thinking about themselves so much. Totally agree. And and I remember thinking about this, and this could lead to your reading, actually, of your post on Medium, Uh is I don't really look in the mirror that much. Like when my kids were in school and I used to pick them up at three o'clock, I would sometimes be reversing in the driveway and catch sight of myself in the rearview mirror (laughs) and think, Uh oh my God, I never looked in the mirror today. I have like mascara going down one side and my roots are popping out. And there's something in my teeth and like, good grief, Kelly, like get it together. But in Zoom world, in pandemic Zoom world, I look at myself for eight hours a day. Yeah. Five days a week. And I've never felt worse about my appearance. So the, the, all these reflections back, I, I think could be this huge new element to the world that's going to drive the well-being down and the well-being industry up. I think you're right. And like, as usual, I've decided to go the opposite. You know, you were talking about mascara running down your face. Oops, gave up mascara. So not that problem. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about your roots not being done. Stop dyeing my hair. Yeah. So also not a problem. Yet, do I have the Zoom filter turned on that like blurs my skin and makes it look better? Hell yes, I do. <laughs> I just have decided. Like, how about that? Yes, how about how they do that? I think it's great. I'm all for it. But also, I just think nobody cares because, like you said, they're all thinking about themselves. So, like, yes, maybe they'll judge me for two seconds, and then they don't give a shit because they're back to looking at their own face. So, Well, I'll tell you, here's a (laughs) well-being tip is turn off self-view in Zoom. Mm -hmm. It's really unnatural to have a reflection of yourself in a meeting. Like, think about a normal meeting. They're just looking at you and you're looking at them and nobody's looking at themselves. Yes. So will you read your piece from Medium about things that you will miss about the pandemic? Okay, gladly. So this is called The Side of Me That Doesn't Want the Pandemic to End. 
I feel scared about the pandemic ending. That feels wrong to write in light of all the loss and pain and misery people have endured over the past year. My family and I are extremely lucky, fortunate, and privileged. Our kids go to school part-time. My parents and in-laws are vaccinated. And the husband and I can easily work from home. I'm in an industry that doesn't qualify as essential. My last professional outing was exactly a year ago. It was the Hot Pod Summit, where my fellow podcasters and I nervously giggled as we greeted each other with elbow bumps and then squeezed into a poorly ventilated room to hear a panel about ad tech. We are so lucky we didn't all get seriously sick. But remembering that day so vividly is a helpful point of reference. I can easily compare who I was then to who I am now and then think forward to envision who I'll be this time next year. Because despite all the inconveniences and worry, there are several things I do not want to let go of when the pandemic is over. The term self-care doesn't do much for me, but I suppose that is how I'm putting this one-year anniversary of the shutdown to use. And I hope you get a chance to do so as well. I'll start by acknowledging that I feel better in my body. I haven't boarded a plane, eaten in a restaurant, or gotten a manicure in a year. No wonder my back hurts less, my stomach is less bloated, and my nails no longer chip and peel. By not cutting or dyeing my hair since March 7th, 2020, I have saved hundreds of dollars. When my speaking engagements dissipated, so did the anxiety that usually accompanied me on stage, and therefore my stress-related rosacea. I now have clear skin, strong nails, and a straight spine. Clearly, the demands of flying around the world while keeping up a high-maintenance grooming routine were depleting me in very obvious physical ways. On the flip side, I haven't gotten a mammogram, an annual physical, or an eye exam in a year. So after a year of improving myself on the outside, I'll need to make sure my insides are just as healthy in year two. Okay, next, my family is better at doing nothing together. Mm. Last spring, the four of us really struggled to keep ourselves occupied. There was a lot of bickering, and the house felt like it was closing in on us. But these days, I notice when I'm alone at the kitchen table while everyone else is puttering around on their own. It feels nice. We are less restless. I don't want to return to days that unfold like a race to the bedtime finish line. I guess that's the benefit of this incremental return to life on the outside. Hopefully, we can ease ourselves into incorporating dinner plans and sporting events and work trips into this calmer way of existing as a foursome. We never would have gotten to know and accept each other's natural rhythms like this without the pandemic. Okay, also, I feel less type A. Last September, my friend's boss told her, this is the year of no ambition. With five kids between them, the two women agreed to accept that just making their daily deadlines was a triumph. For my friend, this conversation was a relief. She was dealing with kids doing remote school, sick coworkers, and budget limitations. She didn't have the hours or the resources to indulge her usual professional drive. And yet, even though my friend accepted that 2020 was all about lowering her expectations, she later texted me, I feel this pressure to do more. She couldn't turn off her ambitious impulses. They kept nagging at her. 
It was like she wanted to learn how to remove them from her brain, shove them into a shoebox, and stick them on the top shelf of her closet. I have tried to put some of my intense drive into that shoebox, and I hope I can leave it there when the pandemic is over. It's not that I don't care about doing good work, but less constant comparison to others has been a real gift. As James Parker of The Atlantic recently advised, strive for excellence by all means, my God, strive for excellence. Excellence alone will haul us out of this hogwash. But lower the bar and keep it low when it comes to your personal attachment to the world. Gratification, satisfaction, having your needs met, fool's gold. If you can get a buzz of animal cheer from the rubbishy sandwich you're eating, the daft movie you're watching, the highly difficult person you're talking to, you're in business. And when trouble comes, you'll be fitter for it. End quote. The past year has opened all our eyes to other troubles on the horizon that will need solving. Climate change, future pandemics, racial disparities, misinformation, extremism. I hope I can hold on to these small and inconsequential things that went right for me personally and stick to spending my energy on the bigger things that matter. Let's take a short break and we'll be right back with Kelly Corrigan Wonders. Hey, welcome back to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I want to thank everybody who is rating and reviewing and sharing our podcast with friends and family. We super appreciate it. I'm here with Manoush Somarodi. She's a fellow podcaster and a really good writer I found on Medium. And we're talking about how different generations view well-being and self-care. You know, so I have lots of thoughts. One is that Like when we think about well-being across generations and you think about even how you would define those terms, like if I asked my mom about Mm -hmm. well-being, she would say making sure you get your annual mammogram is Mm -hmm. Mm well-being. Like lotions and potions and um, weighted blankets and collagen, that's not (laughs) well-being. That wouldn't even make her definition. So just the, the, the way that we even think about the term, has just changed so much. My second thought when I was listening was maybe part of the reason why there is this shift toward more openness about lack of well-being and therefore skyrocketing numbers in every category, anxiety, depression, et cetera, is partially related to things like blogs, like just you Mm. writing that. It's just so available. I mean, the whole existence of something like Medium in the first place is Mm -hmm. a place for people to express themselves. And therefore, it sort of elevates the ordinary existence to something that's worth Mm. evaluating and sharing and potentially learning from. Or, or, you know, there's some promise that processing another person's personal story is a worthwhile endeavor unto itself. And then the other thing is around ambition. Mm-hmm. And the idea of what do you lose when mm. you pull yourself out of some of your ambitions? I mean, you lose income, right? Because I, I mean, I had like, I don't know, 15 paid speaking engagements canceled yep. in a week and it was sort of scary. But then you're right. Like, think about the recuperative value of me staying home. And we are so lucky to be able to do that. And I think that's where the problem is for me. Um, it's like, 
you just mentioned some of the ways that well-being like commodifies us and and for those of us who have disposable incomes that sucks but what i have found very impressive and learned a lot from younger generations is this idea it's another phrase that i don't like but i i understand the the sentiment behind it speaking your truth and the well-being with that mm. so i'll give you an example i was talking about this a few years ago talking about salary negotiations with an older woman who told me or advised me, I should say, that I should just tell the bosses that my husband wasn't making as much money as he used to and that ah. would cajole them in some way. And I was pissed. I was like, no, no, no. See, I'm trying to change the paradigm here. So playing by the old rules of gender roles and patriarchy like, you're literally making me feel sick to my stomach. You know what I mean? And so what is speaking my truth? The phrases don't do anything for me, but I get it. And I, it, it does mean something. The fact that I didn't mention my husband at all. And I'm so lucky to even have a husband who also is able to contribute to the household. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. just being grateful, not having to play that card, and being a person who is in a power to say, no, you pay me what I'm worth um, in a very— lovely and nice way. And I think that's also part of the reason why I stopped dyeing my hair is I am in a good place right now. I want to be a person. I can be a person who looks like this and is in the public eye and hopefully continues to have success. Because if not me, then who? Like, so I guess I'm trying to bring a lot of threads together here, but self-care being that you can sleep at night without thinking that you sacrifice something that you truly do believe in, that's cool. I like that. I don't like it when it's commoditized to me that if I use, you know, CBD oil, I'll need that to sleep because I sacrificed what I really believe in. That part's not so cool. So well, I think— you know, it, another thing that's in your piece that I mm. think is really relevant is that you go from— a lot of self-focus to this broader point of view, which is to say, if I could dispatch with some of this quote-unquote self-care and create time yes. and headspace, I might be more useful to the whole. Totally. And that— You just said it far better than I could. <laughs> I think about it all the time because I, I remember in my 20s having this long, interesting conversation with this person I never saw again about— is it a moral question what you do with your time? Mm. And I, I think about that sometimes because all, all the things that you're doing with your minutes and all the things that you're doing with your dollars have opportunity costs. And what you're saying is if I can knock a few things off the list, like coloring my hair and putting on mascara and taking it off at the end of the day, there's more space. And more space might lead me to thinking more about the common good or world positive actions. There is a bit of a moment, at least for some people right now with the pandemic, about realigning in some ways, as you just described, that this what I want as an individual doesn't mean at the expense of my fellow humans in some way. Um so I have my little indie podcast, uh, other than TED Radio Hour, which is my main gig. And what 
I've been doing on that, it's called Zigzag, is I've been doing a project with my listeners to, because I think this takes work, right? Like, this is not easy. You have to, and this is, again, maybe this is self-care. I don't know. But we, for the last season, have been working on better aligning our personal ambitions with what we want to see in the world. And I don't think we've been taught to do that. And so I think we have to figure it out now for ourselves. Like, there's a philosopher who I quote in in the finale of the season who says, can you answer these three questions? Am I happy? Am I generous? Am I contributing to the world? And God bless you or whatever you believe in, if you can ever answer yes to those three things at the same time, that is the struggle. And for me, when I can use my journalism and audio skills to help people try to say yes to those questions— that's when I have that sparkle of yes myself. The things you're saying are are things that my mom and probably your mom too would not relate to. Like, I don't know mm. that my mom ever asked herself, am I happy? And I remember <laughs> saying to her way later in life after I was probably 30 years old, so she'd been married for 40 years and she had these three kids and they'd all going through college did it turn out the way you wanted it to turn out? And she said, oh, Kelly, I never thought like that. I, I, I never had mm-hmm. thoughts about how it would turn out. Uh-huh. I mean, just the question alone kind of offended yeah, her. Yeah, it was totally. like, what? Like, go to church, save your money, go to the li- give to the library. Well, going to church, I mean, that was the place that maybe filled that nugget of your brain, right? About being connected to something bigger than you. And Most people don't do that anymore. So I think we're all looking for the thing, right? And frankly, also, there's so much more wealth compared to our our parents. Like, my my mom was just busy. You know, there wasn't like a meal service. Do you know what I mean? Like, like there wasn't time to think about, are you happy? It was like, this is it. This is life. Just do it. Do your life. (laughs) And there weren't choices. And if we are lucky enough to have choices, then we have the onus on us to make good ones. So I I was thinking about, like, what are the consequences of the fact that more people are in therapy and more people are comfortable talking about therapy and more people are comfortable using these words, you know, trauma and Mm -hmm. holding space. And it just made me wonder, should we feel sad for our parents that they had less opportunity to explore themselves and each other with this kind of overlay or Mm. should we be worried for ours where Mm. there are so many armchair therapists and you could hear a bunch of 18 year olds sitting around a dorm room saying like, well, he's a narcissist and he's borderline and sort of casually invoking these very serious conditions and where we're using words Each of us in our own way, words that used to be terms in a textbook are now like casually floated in conversation Mm. that may or may not really be pointing to an actual condition, but more like just the idea of a person as kind of an asshole. Like an asshole and a narcissist are not the same. (laughs) You know what I mean? But we we, we might be conflating. Well, what's interesting that you're pointing out is in a lot of these cases, it's not taking responsibility, right? Like maybe the previous generation would have said it's God's way. And maybe a younger generation would say it's a diagnosis. And neither of them are actually really going with free will, which is interesting to me. And I guess maybe that's, I don't 
know that either generation is better or good or that, like, I'm very curious, like, where you think we have fit in in that um, sort of progression. Um, But clearly we're looking for meaning and reasons, right? We want to explain why people act the way they do. And right now we're explaining it through psychological terminology, for better or worse. I think it's very telling how people responded to Naomi Osaka dropping out of the French Open. Like if you think about Billie Jean King or someone like that, and if you could imagine her speaking to her fans and saying, I just can't. And then you think Mm -hmm. about it from my daughter's point of view, which is good for you, Naomi Osaka. (laughs) You know, like leave your mark, tell him to fuck off. Like Mm -hmm. this is hard what you're doing and you shouldn't have to be all things to all people. You're an athlete on a court. You don't have to be a personality afterward. Mm -hmm. Did you have a feeling about that? And do you have any guesses about how that might impact the conversation or even Prince Harry and Meghan talking about mental health, talking about suicidal ideation? Do you have a guess as how that might impact the national conversation or the cultural conversation for this next gen? Yeah, I mean, I can... I think of my own reaction to it. My first reaction was very similar to other, I think, older people, which was like, well, you knew what you signed up for and why do you think you make so much money you are endorsing and using your personality and you don't necessarily get to decide when you get to use that. If you want to speak up for Black Lives Matter, but you've also signed on the dotted line that you're going to do a press conference and talk about your vulnerabilities and also get a big check, you can't take the good and not have the bad. That's my first impulse. Then my next impulse goes to like what Stacey Abrams (laughs) told me in an interview, which was when she lost the race for governor in Georgia, she spoke out against it. She didn't say that it was wrong, like a certain former president that we know, or that it was a lie in any way. She accepted the results. She didn't get what she wanted, but she continued to question the system that she felt was unfair. And that's the longer term work, right? So... I feel very conflicted. I think what we have to accept is that there's a spectrum for all these things. If we want to have these conversations, we have to be willing to dig into the nuance, and that takes longer. So is everybody suicidal? No. Is it good that we're talking about it? Yes, absolutely. Hell yes. But it's not the same. It's not one size fits all. We have to be willing to dig into and to help younger people know the difference between being sad because you are a human and being suicidal because you are in really deep psychic pain or potentially have a mental illness. Like, that's a really wide range. So we're asking a lot of people who are more accustomed to reading things in short bursts on social media. Yeah, Our delivery I mean, mechanisms are not reflecting the depth of knowledge that we're asking of people. Right. I mean, the oversimplifying is so dreadful. It's so damaging. It it poses such a threat to our ability to think clearly about our lives and our situations and what we might want next. Which I think goes back to what do we use social media for? I am a journalist, but I'm also like, I have to market my work that I do, right? Ugh, I, I hate it. It's the worst part have, of my life. And it's the worst part. And I also write about why those platforms suck so bad. And so I feel at a constant, like, I'm living an oxymoron. Every time I post on a social media platform, I have been only using those platforms purely for marketing, 
be like, I am not going to create content that enriches these platforms. I feel comfortable using them as a place to tell you about what's happening, like a message board. But if you want the real me and you want the real goods, here are the places where you can find it. And if you don't, that's cool too. Mm. And and just to, to tie it back to where we started this conversation regarding self-care, I, I think that's being able to go to sleep at night and not feel like I've sold out. Like, I've just decided, well, I can't really say anything that meaningful here, but I am doing my meaningful work over there. So if that's your jam too, cool, I'll meet you over there. But I just wanted to let you know about it here. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, <laughs> I don't know if it's the right way to go about it, but it works for me. I think when I became a parent, the one thing I really did learn very quickly was not to judge how other people are doing things. You have no idea what is going on beneath the surface. We, I think about know, that so a lot. I think a lot about right? like the humility. Judging <laughs> is is the absolute extinction of humility. Because so humility yeah. is, I know that shit's going on in people's lives. I yeah. Mean, if we're going to be as individualist as we are in the society, then we have to accept, like, everybody's going to have a different story here. And the judgment thing, like, if, if it doesn't work for you, then don't do it, is what I feel like saying. So I guess that goes back to Naomi Osaka. Clearly, it's not working for her. She's got enough money. She's decided to make this sacrifice. And, you know, I end up thinking like your daughters. Like, you do you, Naomi. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. I mean, I was like, it's not like she's asking for special consideration. No. She, she, she said, she's fine, like, these are the rules. Then I, I choose no. Right. That's like the right. ultimate act of feminism to me. I mean, I remember yes. talking to Anna Quinlan years and years and years ago, and she said, I felt like we fought for the right to be men when we should have been fighting for the right to choose what we wanted. Well, yeah. That's... And then, you know, Lori Gottlieb, who has also been on the pod, oh, talks awesome. a lot about idiot compassion and wise compassion being like the more— nuanced response to a situation rather than the friend who like automatically validates everything you do and every man who breaks up with you is a total jerk and every boss that's hard on you is a complete asshole and that armchair therapy or Instagram therapy like the mauve colored posts with the handwritten positive message the toxic positivity as Nadia Boltz Weber said on the pod is that it totally sinks any shot at nuance and context and puts everything into this oversimplified form that's saying you're the most important person and you take care of you, baby. And it's all about you, you, you. And I just worry, let me just lay it bare. I worry Mm. that no wise man anywhere ever suggested that the way to happiness was to spend more time thinking about yourself. Well, that is the truth. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so happy I found you through Medium. I'm so happy to know you. I hope we get to do more things together in the future. Thank you. Me too. Here are my takeaways from my conversation with Manoush. One, the concept of self-care might actually be programmed into us by advertising, which convinces us that we aren't buying products and paying for services. We're accepting our vulnerability and tending to our soul. Number two, the internet age has taken us from having just one voice in our head, our own, to having many competing voices telling us what to do. Number three, setting rules and boundaries for how you want to live your life and having the guts to stick to them might just be the best self-care there is. Number four, all the digital reflections of ourselves may be responsible for driving our collective sense of well-being down and the well-being industry up. Number five, 
turn off self-view in Zoom. Number six, learning from the younger generation to speak your truth and be your authentic self may feel slightly uncomfortable for older generations, but it might also be the fastest route to well-being. Number seven, self-care should never be at the expense of our fellow humans. Eight, no wise man ever suggested that the way to happiness was to spend more time thinking about yourself. And number nine, judgment is the extinction of humility. Next time on Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I've always remembered that as a pivot moment, the idea that I could be hanging around with these guys causing trouble at a baseball game, but I actually really like watching baseball with my dad, so I might just go do that, and I kind of don't care what people think. As we conclude our Mind the Gap series, Kelly discusses how different generations approach parenting with expert Dr. Lisa Damore and writer Will Leach. I want to thank Manoush Somarodi. I want to thank everybody at Kelly Corrigan Wonders. That's producers Susan George and Tammy Stedman, our sound engineer, Dean Kateri, our intern, Margaret Faust, our assistant, Emma Broning. And I want to thank you guys for sharing the podcast, for rating it, reviewing it, tagging me in your social media posts. You can always find me on Instagram at Kelly Corrigan. We'll be back next week with another episode of Kelly Corrigan Wonders. Hey, I have a quick favor to ask. We are conducting a survey to get to know you, our audience, better. It won't take long and it's easy to find. Visit survey.prx.org slash Kelly. That's survey.prx.org slash Kelly. Thank you.